Welcome to the Minneapolis Insider Podcast, produced by Meet Minneapolis and sponsored by U.S. Bank, where we take you behind the scenes of events, happenings, and all things Minneapolis. I'm Kathy McCarthy from Meet Minneapolis, sitting in our social media command center at the Meet Minneapolis Visitor Center on Nicolette and Fifth Street. And I'm Kim Inslee. For this episode, we're going to take an insider's look at Egypt's sunken cities exhibit at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, known as MIA. This is an incredible display of artifacts discovered near the mouth of the Nile River along the Mediterranean coast of Egypt. Among the discoveries were massive granite statues, 16 to 18 feet tall, and weighing more than 8,000 pounds. These came from two ancient cities that disappeared more than 1,000 years ago. These were discovered just two short decades ago, and now they are on display at Mia through April 14th. Our first guest today is Jan Lodvik Grutens, Mia's first ever curator of African art. He's worked to expand Mia's collection of African art, including pieces from Somalia and Ethiopia, a nod to the Twin Cities' large immigrant communities from the Horn of Africa. And our second guest is Michael Lapthorne, exhibition designer at Mia. Prior to landing in Minneapolis, Michael was with the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. He's also worked at the Chicago History Museum, and we want to welcome you both, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Great, thanks. You know, I think maybe the best place to start is a little history lesson before we get into the exhibition. So if you can briefly tell us a little of the history of Tonus Heraklion and Canopus and what happened to these cities. Yes, so these are two cities that are on the coast of northern Egypt, on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, They had existed for centuries. Tonus Heraklion was an important port city on one of the branches of the Nile, so ships would come in and out, um, an economic hub, and uh, Canopus was famous for its temple dedicated to Osiris. And, um, and then um, throughout their history these cities underwent a number of uh, tsunamis and earthquakes, and the final, the final blow came uh, around 1200 years ago in the 8th century of the common era and they disappeared completely from the surface of the earth. It's incredible they remained buried for so long. Um, So Frank Godio and his team, they came to uncover these treasures that had been sitting there for so long. What is the significance of that find to historians today and can you talk a little bit about how that find even happened? Sure. So uh, Egyptologists knew about the existence of what they thought were three cities, Tonis and Heraklion and Canopus. And so uh, they hadn't been found on land. Frank Godio uh, and his team of underwater archaeologists, both French and Egyptians, then for two years scanned the sea bottom in a particular bay uh, somewhat east of the big city of Alexandria and then started excavating. And that's when they discovered the first city, Canopus, and then the second, which in fact had two names in the written uh, records, the old Egyptian name of Tonis and then the new Greek name of Heraklion. And it's quite significant because um, uh, a lot happened there and, and had been described by Greek and Egyptian historians, so very exciting. And so the pieces in the exhibit, um, how was it possible to get an exhibit of this magnitude at Mia? And where does that kind of put Minneapolis and Mia on the map? Because this is not going to many, many cities. Right. Um, it's, it's really a unique opportunity to see these treasures that have been uncovered from underwater. 
and the exhibition came to us from Europe, a package show, and uh, Frank Godio, the underwater archaeologist, worked closely together with Egyptian museums. All the artworks come from Egypt, and um, it toured through Europe, had three venues there, and then came uh, to the US. Uh, our director, Kevin Feldman, worked together with the director of the St. Louis Art Museum, Brent Benjamin, to take that exhibition and show it uh, here in, in the Midwest. It's an amazing exhibit. So, and Michael, I wanted to ask you, so any exhibit that you do at MIA, you want to tell a story and you want to bring people on a journey. So what is the story, the journey that this exhibit takes visitors on? Well, uh, we had to, well, first of all, we had to look at the building itself. I mean, Kaywin came to me and said, I want to do this show. Can you make it work? Um, when uh, we saw the show in Zurich, um, they were not able to put up the colossal granite statues in the museum. They had to build boxes outside uh, the museum. And so for a split second, we thought, well, maybe we could do that in Minneapolis, too, if the, you know, the building is, uh, was, you know, the building that we're in now is, is uh, doesn't have the strongest floors, so we had to make sure that they weren't, you know, they wouldn't punch through. So, um, and the cost of, you know, the, just the idea of having them out in the winter just was a no-go. So we went to our engineers and we said, can we put them inside the building? And we spent several weeks measuring, they going through plans to see where we could put them. And as it turns out, um, we put the king and queen right at the entrance where they're the first thing you see. And uh, we put the second uh, colossal statue right in the sort of the nexus of the old part of the museum where it, it's, looks, it looks grand. So in that way, I would say that this, in, this, in this way, the story followed the practicalities of installation. So we were able to create a sort of a, um, a sequence, a processional, if you will, um, from the king and queen onto Hopi, and then the way that, again, the way the building is uh, laid out, you see past Hopi all the way to the entrance of the, of the museum, or the, the uh, special exhibition. And having that sequence, I think, was really important. It, it helps generate excitement for the show. People may come to the museum not knowing that the show is there. Um, and uh, we've done some special lighting to enhance the presentation of the objects to sort of give a little taste and a little preview of what you could see inside. But, um, and then in the museum, in the exhibition itself, um, we, we tried to lay out a very clear narrative of the ritual of um, the Osiris mysteries, mm -hmm. and how the steps that they take. Um, we start with a sort of a general introduction of what you can expect to see. Uh, we talk about the, you know, there's a, there's a great intro video about uh, the work underwater that Frank and his team did. Um, it's, it's incredible, laborious uh, effort to, to even recover the objects. Um, so we talk about that. We, we, try, to, we try to keep the, 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 the science and the sort of the excitement of being underwater alive uh, while you're also talking about um, Osiris. Mm -hmm. So there's a sort of a twofold, it's sort of a twofold show, um, and then we walk through the uh, the actual sort of the ritual of of 
uh, Osiris, his, his um, death and rebirth through various uh, you know, fabrications of um, a, sort of an effigy of Osiris. And if I could interrupt yeah. just a second, I mean, that was fascinating to me because what I was reading, and there's a lot of reading in this exhibit, you learn so much, that's not something that average people in that time period got to see. No, never. In fact, many of the objects that we have on display would never have been seen by anybody except the priests themselves. And, you know, I think it's reasonable to assume that maybe even one or two people ever saw these pieces that that now we're showing to the public. So, uh, yeah, these are extraordinarily rare, extraordinarily, um, uh, you know, beautiful objects that were, you know, uh, never seen before. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very exciting that we have so many of them, mm -hmm. in a, you know, in our show. And in addition to that, how well preserved they were. When you walk through and you see some of these artifacts, you could look at them and think that someone crafted them last year, last week. You wouldn't realize that it's more than a thousand years old underwater. Talk about when, when you first saw some of these artifacts, your thinking in terms of how magnificent they truly are. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, and, and there are two things. Um, first, Many of these objects were not only underwater, but then also buried under a layer of sand, silt, and sometimes even clay. So that would preserve them. They wouldn't be eroded by the water, and they wouldn't have been um, destroyed by um, other elements. And then also, there are a lot of um, metal works that were found, used in the uh, ceremonies of the Osiris Mysteries that, Matt, that uh, Michael referred to. And again, such sites also had existed in the past on land, but they have, would have been looted over the centuries, and the metal would have been melted uh, to produce other objects. So it, they were really preserved and protected by the water and the silt. And uh, it's, it's remarkable that some of them uh, look so fresh. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's a great example, the first piece that's in the lobby. It's actually a, a, a great example of the sequence of, of discovering these pieces. It's an, it's, um, it's a naos, which is a, uh, in effect, it's a little miniature temple. And it was found in pieces, but the pieces were found in different times. Uh, the, the, the cap piece is currently in the Louvre, so there's a, there's a replica of it that's installed. But you can see quite plainly um, there was a pe you know, pieces that were found on land. Uh, you can sort of very clearly read the hieroglyphs, but they fit perfectly with pieces that were discovered later underwater that are worn. Uh, and you can you can see the evidence of that, um, but clearly they fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. I mean, there are a few pieces. Very intriguingly, there are missing pieces. They've got to be somewhere, probably, you know. Um, <laughs> but you can sort of see how Franck has sort of built up this um, sequence of discovery installation in pretty much in one object. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a nice little mini story within. Uh, in the beginning of the, of yeah, I, the I can imagine the people, the excitement when they figured out how things fit together. Speaking of exciting, there's one part, point where you walk in and you see this gigantic bull, the Apis bull. Um, and we're told this is the first time we've seen this outside of Egypt. Can you speak a little bit about what this is, what it means, and how special that it's here? Sure. So the majority of the artworks in the exhibition come from underwater excavations. 
but some objects were added uh, from other museums or other sites to kind of tell the story. And the Apis bull is, is one of them uh, that was found on land in, a, in, a, in the remains of a temple in the large city of Alexandria. And um, it's interesting for many reasons. First, it's, it's a beautiful work of art with a life-size bull with all the details uh, made of stone and then polished. Um, it represents the god Osiris, who's kind of present uh, throughout the exhibition. And it's one of the latest pieces on view in the exhibition. It dates from uh, our common era. It was made in the second century CE, and it was given by the Roman Emperor Hadrian to the Temple of Osiris in Alexandria. Because this exhibition tells the story of ancient Egypt, but at the end of its history. So when the Greek had uh, a dynasty of rulers, the so-called Ptolemies, so it's a Ptolemaic period, and then the last Ptolemaic pharaoh, who was Cleopatra, uh, after she committed suicide, the Romans took over and they made, they turned Egypt into a Roman province. But certain ceremonies and belief systems and rituals continued. And so the bull is, is a perfect example of the longevity of uh, Egyptian practices, even under the Romans. You know, Kim and I had an opportunity to go through the exhibit and we were fascinated by, by many things. And we've talked about the large statues that you first see when you enter the museum and you can't miss those. For both of you, we'd really like to know what are some things that really excite you that are in the exhibit that, you know, maybe the average person might pass by and not realize how tremendously special it is, but it's, you know, among your favorites? Well, I think that one of my favorite piece in the show is, you know, it reflects exactly what Jan Ludwig just said. It, it shows in its carving the fusion of Egyptian and Roman, Greek and Roman aesthetic. It's a statue of Arsinoe. It's in the last gallery. And you, what you see is you see a, a woman, uh, a carving of a woman in a, a black, very hard black stone. Her foot is her foot is forward in a in a in a, in a what we what we are familiar with a sort of one foot forward Egyptian pose. Um, her body is very erect and very sort of again very sort of a, a typical Egyptian look, but the drapery on her is very different than what you would typically see in Egyptian carving. It's very, it has a flow to it that is very, very Greek and very, sort of very classical. And on the back, where one would typically find on Egyptian statuary, you would find a, a, a vertical plinth on which there would be carvings, hieroglyphs, or other, or, other uh, illustrations. Um, in, that's, they've dispensed with that altogether and they've given her um, her drapery that flows over her and to the back. So she's just as beautiful from the back as from the front. And again, it's this sort of perfect fusion between Egyptian and Greek, Greek and Roman aesthetic that I find just, um, it's just, it's, it's marvelous. It's really, it's really touching in a way to see that uh, change, that shift mm -hmm. in respecting the old but moving on to a new aesthetic. That was actually my favorite piece. I took pictures all the way around. The, the, it's brilliant. 
I mean, it, it looks like she's wearing this transparent dress. It's incredible. Mine is in, in not at the end of the exhibition, but in the very first gallery, and it's a small head, so it's part of a statue. And it's fascinating because it doesn't look Egyptian at all. And the artist who made it was uh, probably from Cyprus, and there were, of course, trade connections and, and other connections between ancient Egypt and Cyprus. But then there's yet another layer because it represents a Phoenician god, the god Baal. And so it was found in, on the water on, along the Egyptian coast, which means that there were temples, Phoenician temples in ancient Egypt that used statues made in Cyprus. It really shows the globalized aspect of that part of the Mediterranean more than 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So we encourage everyone to go ahead and take a look at some of your favorites and then come up with their own favorites as, as they walk through the exhibition as well. Um, one of the things you had to d deal with, and you spoke about this a little bit, Michael, was the logistics and the engineering of this exhibition, getting these pieces in, was quite a dance, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, that was really the most challenging part was once... Uh, once the engineers gave us the thumbs up and said, yeah, not only can you put the statues upright, but you can actually get them in the building, uh, we, had to measure some, we had to measure all the doors and make sure that we could fit them. In fact, we had to take the doors off of the, main, the old main entrance on 24th just to get a couple of the crates into the building. That was very exciting. Um, but, yeah, the real challenge was planning ahead to make sure that we had staged all of our equipment and that we had located the precise locations of where the crates full of objects needed to be placed so that we weren't working uh, we weren't working against ourselves that we had uh, worked out a, a strategy of installation that would give us enough room to be able to install pieces um, not only did we have to account for the space on the floor that, that, that these heavy crates took up, but we had to make sure that we had enough room to assemble and disassemble the, the equipment that we would use to install them. So we had to sort of double, double the amount of space required. And um, I think once you, know, uh, once you sit down with a plan and a spreadsheet um, and you figure it all out, it, it just has to do with sort of, you just have to call the plays one after the other and make sure that everybody knows what's next and what's next and what's next. You have to think many, many moves ahead. And so. Jan Ludwig, during this time, what are, are you standing there watching all of these packages being unwrapped or where are you in this process as well? Well, I, I, leave, I leave this over to Michael. <laughs> um, and and uh, we were also helped by uh, a crew of French and Egyptian installers who came with the exhibition and who have uh, had experience for many, many years to put together some of these pieces, like the colossi arrive, each of them, there are three, arrive in two crates each. They are in two pieces, and so they have to be reassembled in the museum and then with complicated cranes kind of lifted uh, in their upright position. So that's something that... Um, that the museum, fortunately, was not responsible for. <laughs> that would be scary. When we first heard about this exhibit, I think both Kathy and I just 
we Egypt sunken cities I mean it's it's romantic it's it really touches your imagination why are we in this day and age so fascinated with ancient Egypt yes it, it remains uh, one of the most fascinating civilizations I think um, and there may be various reasons one of them is that it lasted for a very long time it's uh, besides the Chinese civilization it's I think the longest lasting that ever existed on earth because um, you must realize that we are closer to the period that is covered by the exhibition than the people who lived during that period were to the first pyramids so there was much more history already gone by in ancient Egypt uh, which is basically the first dynasties started around 3500 BCE um, so there's this this longevity the persistence of rituals of iconography art forms and then um, ancient Egypt also always has something uh, mysterious I mean there are the pyramids what's inside I mean all the time new technologies are being applied to put little laser cameras inside to discover hidden rooms and maybe treasures um, the hieroglyphs themselves are kind of a secret language that has to be decoded and in this case uh, we have findings that were covered by the sea so that was also something hidden and and finally maybe um, ancient Egyptians maybe more than other civilizations were really obsessed with death and rebirth uh, which was celebrated in these Osirian mysteries but uh, the whole idea of mummies and sarcophagi and making gifts to the dead in their tombs so that they can travel to the next world and survive is, is an idea that also fascinates us because we're all mortal still today. So the great thing about this exhibit is it runs until April 14th, so people still have plenty of time to see it. What other special kind of Egypt-themed events will you be hosting in the coming months, or are there, are there any other things tied to this exhibit that you know, we should let people know about for the coming months if they want to come to Mia and see the exhibit? Yes, we have a number of programs related to this, this exhibition. Uh, there will be a lecture in February uh, about underwater archaeology. Then, if I'm not mistaken, in March we will have a speaker from the city of Alexandria to talk about the huge library which is there, which has been rebuilt. It was the first library ever uh, that existed in the in the first that was built in the first century BCE. And then in in April we will have kind of a study day with various aspects of Egypt that will be highlighted. But everything will be, can be found on our website. Fantastic. I think you're going to be um, inspiring a lot of people who want to be archaeologists and people who love art. Um, a big person behind the inspiration that's going on at MIA has been Kaywin Feldman, who just got an amazing job uh, at the National Gallery of Art. You still have her for a little while, a little while before she leaves. So as you look ahead to the future for Mia, what do you see and, and, and what do you hope? Well, I think that we should still, I, I think we have to take big, these big chances and take big shows like this. Um, this was a big, I mean, this was a huge undertaking for a museum of our size. I mean, we are a, you know, we are a big museum, uh, but, you know, 
the staff, we do, you know, we all do a lot of different things. And this was a big uh, logistical uh, puzzle to put together. I think we have to keep doing that. I think we have to, I mean, we, we did just the previous show, the Power and Beauty show with Robert Wilson. That was a big stretch for us. Um, this was a big stretch for us. Uh, the duration of the show, the complexity of the installation of the show. Um, you know, we're, we have to keep looking forward to, you know, uh, looking for exhibitions that have, you know, perhaps some difficult themes that aren't quite so, um, you know, quite so generic in terms of, you know, shows with just paintings of, you know, uh, they have to, we have to sort of get in the mix in terms of what kinds of shows we're doing. And, and I have every, you know, I have every reason to think that the next director will, will pursue that agenda as as well as as Kaitlyn has I mean she's really been a force for um, opening us to uh, take risks and I think that has to continue and so I, I also think that this exhibition is important for uh, Mia we, we are an encyclopedic museum and we do have a small collection of ancient Egyptian art but we will never be able to show Colossi, recent discoveries, all these treasures that uh, the Egyptian museums have. And so this is a, a unique chance and, and we hope in the future also to be able to present uh, very special exhibitions that kind of widen the horizon of our visitors. Uh, well, we want to thank you both for being here. Uh, Jan Lovig Gruders and Michael Lapthorne, very nice to have you here and learn from you. Egypt's Sunken Cities, presented by U.S. Bank, is on display at the Minneapolis Institute of Art now through April 14th. And it is a ticketed event, although you can see the Colossi without a ticket, right? Also, you can learn so much more on Mia's website. And gentlemen, thank you so very much. Um, we uh, encourage our listeners, you're welcome to subscribe to the Minneapolis Insider Podcast on iTunes and Google Play. For more insider information on what to see and do in Minneapolis, you can find Meet Minneapolis on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Plus, our website, Minneapolis.org, is loaded with information to help you explore our great city. Thanks so much for listening to the Minneapolis Insider Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>